Hello, welcome to GV Theory and Practice. This series is exploring what it means to be human in the age of human-like AI. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. This is our second episode today, and we'll be exploring AI and communication. Yes, I mean the AI-driven chatbots like Google Bard, ChatGPT, and others like it that everyone is talking about. We'll be looking specifically at what developments have led to our conversations with chatbots feeling more human-like and more empathic. The impact of these chatbots is and will continue to be enormous. This is what Greg Corrado, our guest from the first episode in this series, said. Ultimately, I believe that the direction of travel that we're seeing in generative AI and large language models is one where conversational interfaces are going to be so useful and so powerful that I expect that they'll become dominant. We had a great overview from Greg about safety of AI and guardrails for implementing AI in healthcare. Yeah, and today we are so lucky to be able to speak to one of the software developers and research leaders and engineering managers behind Google's chatbot called Bard. But before we meet Dr. Claire Tsui, Alex, can you bring everyone up to speed on the differences between these different chatbots? Okay. So we've had the word chatbot for a while. We've had the phrase language model for a while. The difference between what we're seeing today and what's come before is really something that we can trace on a straight line, which is improvements in algorithms, improvements in data set size, improvements in compute. But the fundamentals are really almost the same as they were before ChatGPT and BARD came out. So everything that's being released today is, I think, in a blanket term, we'd call a large language model, which is a type of artificial intelligence approach that uses inside of it a deep learning technique called a transformer trained on extremely large data sets in a semi-supervised fashion. And we're going to get into that in this episode. But all that basically means is these things are trying to learn how to predict the next word. And that seems really simple, but it's a very powerful insight because it means that everything on the internet, every word, every sentence becomes really useful training data. You don't have to pair a document with a human label. You just try to predict the next word. And then we can use these models trained in a semi-supervised fashion in specific task areas doing something called fine-tuning. We can change how they predict the next word. We can change how they, basically the personalities uh, that we perceive them to have by tilting their behavior, by rewarding some outputs and, and penalizing others. So what's really different about these new models, these large language models with transformers at their inside trained on lots of data, is they're trained on many orders of magnitude more data than anything we've had before. And that takes many orders of magnitude more compute expended than we've ever spent before. So everything is trained basically on the internet. <laughs> The internet is what's teaching these models how to speak. And the model behind Google's BARD is called Lambda. And just to be very concrete, it was trained on 137 billion different pieces of unlabeled text from the internet, right? GPT-3 was trained on 175 billion and GPT-4, we don't know for certain, but it might be in the trillions at this point in time. 
The size of training data isn't everything. The, it's hard to say, but the personality, how human-like the responses are is also really important. And this is something that Claire is going to get into with us in this episode. So there's a lot going on here. The story is very much unwritten and we are very privileged to talk to one of the people that is right in the middle of making these things. Totally agree, Alex. It's going to be so great to talk to Claire Tsui today. We'll be concentrating on Google's Bard, but what we'll really be focusing on is what it means to be human in this age of human-like chatbots. So let's welcome our guest, Dr. Claire Tsui, Google Fellow in the Google DeepMind team. Claire, welcome to Theory and Practice. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to be here. Glad to have you on the show. Can I start by asking you maybe a question that has multiple parts? It's going to be complex, but I just want to dive right in. Can you summarize the key components of your role in developing Google Bard? Yeah, so I've been working in the past few years with teams, many folks in the previous Google Brain group, to work on some base modeling, things like Palm 2, and also uh, worked with teams on Lambda with a, a lot of folks, of course, not just me, and also the tuning part to make the base model adapt to a quality that is conversational level and to, to accomplish different tasks, so the tuning part, as well as the efficiency of both the base model and the serving of the overall large language model of BARD. All right, so maybe you can just uh, unpack some of those things for us. So for example, what's BARD? And then maybe just a little bit on what fine tuning is as well. So BARD is a large language model that basically can take users' questions or instructions and then uh, respond with the answers or basically follow the instruction to give users what they ask for. And this model is based on like some foundational base model, which is a self-supervised learned uh, language model trained to predict the next token at each time. It's a large scale one. And so that base model usually has the generalized ability to do different tasks, downstream tasks with relatively small amount of supervised label. By supervised label, is like you give an input and then you say, okay, this is the output. Okay, so try to learn this input-output pair. But self-supervised learning is just predict the next token. And the benefit of the base model is so that it becomes a very good pattern recognition engine and actually uh, can be very good on general pattern recognition and generation. And then it will be very easy to tune with uh, limited supervised data to accomplish different tasks. Can we double click on that? So you mentioned quickly, and it's simple to state, but I think there's a lot there, which is the essence of training these models using self-supervision is that you're just trying, in a sentence, trying to predict the next piece of a word. And sometimes a token is a word, sometimes a token is a piece of a word or multiple words. That's really easy to say, but you know we can in, in training models with self-supervision where all they're doing is predicting the next word, they can do some surprising things. Yes. So how does that work? So I can first describe why self-supervised learning is more powerful. I think that is one of the breakthrough of why large language model today is actually working astonishingly well compared to the traditional deep learning. So traditional deep learning is that you require data pairs, like this is the input, this is the output, and usually it's task specific. And for each task, you need to give like 
millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of input. And then the output is supposed to be like, this is Apple, this is Pear, right? So it needs a lot of those task-specific data. But self-supervised learning is mainly use the previous data to predict the next data or surrounding data. And for every prefix, you have the next token. And that is really feeding the deep learning models to learn the connections and associations between different patterns. Like when you see this, the next thing is this one. And the architecture for the self-supervised learning model is also important. The transformer is also a, a breakthrough architecture that make it really effective. I think if you use an example, you know, when human babies were born, they don't know what is apple, what is pear, but what? They just look around of their world. For the first two years, they just like, oh, this happens, and then this next happens, and this like looks similar, and this. So they they look at the data without supervision, and then after some time, then as soon as the parents say, oh, this is apple, and this is pear, the parent does not need to tell a thousand times, this is apple, this is apple, this is apple too, but then the kids just automatically pick it up. So that's the power of self-supervised learning, learning the patterns, the deep associations, and things like that. So, you know, I think this year we've all been blown away by the power of large language models. And at least to an outsider, it feels like it came on out of nowhere. What do you feel like are the two, three, four insights that brought us to where we are today and when did they happen? Yeah, I think there are a few factors. One is architecture and algorithm, and the other one is compute, and the other one is tuning and data techniques. That's a great list. Let's take them one by one. So architecture. So on the architecture one, Transformer, as I mentioned, is a new architecture that really advanced uh, machine learning models. So just let's pause for a second and explain to listeners um, what a Transformer is and how it works and, and the importance of that first step. So the specific architecture that you mentioned was the Transformer. And it was a big leap forward in natural language processing in two ways. So first, it broke down tasks so that they could be worked on in parallel, and this made things all run a lot faster. Then second, it also had this notion of attention, which is the idea that in trying to predict the next word, you could look at the whole text or, or a big chunk of it, rather than just the one or two or three or whatever number of words before it. And so that made it much more accurate in its understanding. You know, just to use an example, when we read, we don't just pay attention to the few words before it. We understand the whole chapter and the bigger context. So attention kind of enabled that. All right. I, I realize that was really simple, Claire. But could you go on and explain how self-supervised learning algorithms work? Self-supervised learning is the other piece of algorithm that is, in a way, a training strategy. And to breakthrough from previous, like, you know, deep supervised learning. And I call this deep generalist learning, which is you learn from data to generate other data, and then it's a generative uh, way. And these kind of learning has like a very strong power of transfer learning power, like from one task to another task. And combination of transformer and this uh, self-supervised learning, I think really advanced it. Okay, so what the transformer architecture really enabled was self-supervised learning. Instead of having to label text, we could just try and predict missing words that we blanked out in the text. And so that re reduced the need for human input, correct? 
Exactly. And also compute, right? Like say with the latest advancement of compute and large, like really powerful machine learning chips and and scalable parallel using many, many chips to do this training task and etc. I think that helps as well. And I also, I think the scalability piece also brought this to the next level when the model scale when number of parameters or weights in the model increase from millions to hundreds of millions to billions to hundreds of billions, right? And that is really increased the power. Yeah. So can you say a little bit about why we need so many parameters? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably have more parameters than training observations. So basically there's like every data example, right, in the training, those parameters will be adjusted. And usually when the number of parameters are larger, it can easily overfit when the data is small. So that's why self-supervised learning is important because with self-supervised learning, you have almost infinite amount of trillions of tokens and data to, to turn through. So that helps uh, you know train the model better. And usually larger models are easier to fit the actual pattern with smaller models, right? When you have new data in, it has to crowd out other information. It has to, you know, sort of trade off. But with more parameters, you can fit like all kinds of patterns inside. So, so the ultimate test of whether or not it's working is when it's out there in the world, people are using it and they like it. Exactly. So as some context in our last episode, Anthony was talking about the Turing test. And we decided that we both might get the prize for being the human most often mistaken for a computer. Uh, but seriously, what what is it that makes a conversation with a chatbot feel more human-like than not? I think that's because the model is trained over a lot of the data. It has seen tons of data on the web, and especially with a lot of conversation sometimes data. And I, I cannot say it's actually... Yeah, it's, it's more official language often, right? If you look at it, it's like official language and it's trained to predict the language, the next token. So it's very, very fluent and like nice language based on the training data. If the more, And if it's trained with more dialogue data, more conversational data, then it will be even more like conversational-like. But I would say that the Turing test may be not hard enough because just sounding like human does not mean that is actually human. Well, you know, you made reference in passing that we're training it on text, which is often more sort of formal and rigid. What if we took all of YouTube and turned it into text? That would be an enormous corpus of conversational data. Do you think that's what will happen with the next generation of chatbots? I think that will definitely help. Yeah, and I think the more data the model is trained on, the more, in a way, uh, capable it can be. But as for the detailed, what data to use, and it has a lot of, you know, sort of um, governance, data governance uh, things. So not to belabor it too much, but I'd love to dig into this notion of what a chatbot sounds like or what it feels like. So how did you work out what human-like responses, this is going to sound weird, what human-like responses humans like, <laughs> or what what chatbots, what kind of personality or what kinds of style of responses people like across different cultures. I'm sure there's different there's different ways that people want to interact with a chatbot. How did you how did you figure that out? How did you create something that felt natural and that that people prefer to work with, prefer to interact with? 
So I think there there's data quality and uh, annotation and safety and a lot of things. And so the idea is that once it's self-supervised trained, and then later stage there could be you know sort of slight guidance on like I want this sort of style, and those are done by tunings, right? Downstream, like say somewhat supervised and annotated tunings. I think the safety and then a lot of other things are also like guided after the self-supervised pre-train. So there is a pre-train stage, and then there is downstream tuning stage. So you know, let me switch gears for a second and talk a little bit about groundedness.、Mm-hmm. Um, so one of our previous guests was Greg Carrado, and he talked about groundedness, especially as it relates to safety. And basically, what he said was that it was really important to make sure that AI relates to things we know about in the real world. I know that you've had a recent paper. That you called the mind's eye that kind of relates to this. Maybe you can say a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think grounding is really important because I think LLM models today is very knowledgeable and it also can be very creative, but sometimes it doesn't really always provide grounded answers. It can create and things, and it's actually interesting because sometimes we human can be creative as well, but. We know when we can be creative and when we should stay grounded and factual, and I think the LLM today still does not quite get there yet. And the purpose, the goal of the Mind's Eye paper is saying that for things like you know physical things that we cannot really trust LLM models to be grounded and, and know all the facts is to ground it to. Physical simulations, so that it can connect the real world information and simulation and things like with the LLM to use the real world information to help that. Another grounding example is to basically use tools to connect the fresh data or latest update data or something like that in the world to ground the LLM to use that as context or grounding assistant information. Okay, well, let me pull on another thread. You know, one of the theses of this show is that by understanding AI better, we can understand ourselves better. So, when we think about humans, we come to learn our physical environment, and we start to intuit rules about the world from our experience. So, you know, go back to your mind's eye paper in physics. You know, as we learn how to drive a car. We gain a physical intuition for the amount of time it takes to brake, based on the feel for the momentum of the car, and in some sense, we're kind of intuitively learning classical mechanics as we go. So somehow we have that knowledge embedded inside of our brain. Is that an example of grounding? And how would you transport that to a computer? Uh, I think, in a way, it's like common sense that people, human being, experience, but not everything human being experience are reflected in the web data that is used to train large language models. So that's why I think it's like important to sometimes use, you know, simulations to fill that gap. And that's how I feel like, say, for example, self-driving car and other things. LLM does not always have those physical world information in its pre-trained data, so that's why it's important to use that. Understood. And let me ask another question that I just find fascinating as someone who kind of trained in mathematics originally. You know, the LLMs—they're kind of naively doing curve fitting, and they do it amazingly well. And then you give them even kind of relatively simple 
math problems, you know, arithmetic with lots of parentheses. Yeah. And they, they kind of fail miserably. Exactly. And so there's a way in which they're able to do induction at the highest of high levels. And yet even the most rudimentary aspects of deduction are lost. How do we empower the next generation with deductive capabilities? I mean, we as humans can do both. Is this fair? What do you, you're smiling, so I, I hope you like it. <laughs> because this one I thought actually a lot. I don't have the answer though, <laughs> but I do think that LLM is not human intelligence yet or not matching human intelligence. And exactly as you said, you know, no matter how much data you feed the LLM, it cannot do accurate mathematics like deduction, right? It cannot actually follow a program exactly like computer today, just run the program or just follow my instruction, like, you know, literally uh, infinite. I think it's because it doesn't have the generalization of infinite generalization. Basically, you know, it can do pattern to some level, to some length of content length, but it doesn't know, like, for example, if we do uh, arithmetic addition or subtraction, like it doesn't do the deduction accurately yet, right? And most of the LLM today is in a way induction and then reproduction of the generation piece to some level. So there are two things. One is the infinite piece, recursion piece, and the other one is the accuracy piece, the verification piece. And LLM right now is all probability-based, and then it pulls its ways together in some way that it has the highest probability, but it doesn't get the accuracy. And that answer to that is still missing. And that's actually the reason I think it's still exciting to continue to do research. Like we're not done yet. We're just like at the beginning and it's the current like instruction tune LLM is beyond a lot of people's expectation, but it's still not there yet. And there are a lot further to be done. I want to pick up on one thing that you said there, which is a key term, which is probability. And I work with some really brilliant people when I was at then Google Brain, now Google DeepMind, who thought really, you know, very deeply about uncertainty quantification. And one area of concern about chatbots is they'll give you a, a coherent sentence of, of English or any language that you ask of it that it trained on, but they won't give you a confidence score. And in some cases, the sentence appears very confident, but is in fact a hallucination, which ties into this idea of groundedness, which is a really important technology that doesn't exist yet, but people are working hard on. But then the other flip side of this is, well, if the output of the model is simply uncertain, then we can, as humans, as we interact with it, we can we can know how to take that uh, output and, and maybe apply a different layer of judgment on it. So how do we think about this? What's the state of the art here? Yeah, that's absolutely a great point. And that's exactly, I think, what's missing nowadays for the LLM. I think one of the biggest gap is I call it introspection of the model is basically say, I know what I don't know, right? And I know what I'm not confident and human being knows that. And right now, any of the model always like spit out something, especially LLM, like generative model is always give you something. And without telling, hmm, am I like sort of making it up? Am I confident? I think this is going to be a really important piece of research that will be really critical to the grounding factual and trustworthiness of LLM, to be honest. Like, um, because if I ask it to create something and is whether I know 
this is factual. Like it needs to have this introspection、uh, and also confidence, right? Like say whether I think I have the answer or I don't have an answer. So these are really important research directions for LLM. Okay, so we've talked about a few different ideas for where LLMs should go next. We've talked about the notion of grounding. We've talked about the notion of empowering them with more deductive capabilities, and then you just talked about being able to have introspection. What else do we need to do? What do you think is the next frontier of LLM research? I think there are a few gaps and factuality, grounding, and introspection. These are related to one big area of gap that we have right now, LLM. And I think another gap or opportunity is efficiency. That like right now, if we want to be capable and want to have like say high quality, then we require hundreds of billions of weights fully connected, right? And that's just not. Sustainable for the longer term, and I think sparse modeling and this dynamic decision of which pathway to trigger or activate is going to be an important area to lead to really human level, like efficient LLM models, not burning too much compute and things like that. And then I think another big opportunity or not completely solved, I believe, is reasoning and planning and to use. I think to use is a big one that is open the horizon, but how do we use it effectively and、uh, intelligently? Tool, tool use is a really interesting one. I'd love you to dig in there. That's, I guess, two pieces that touch on what Anthony mentioned with induction and deduction. There's other programs which you can call, which will just do exactly what you want it to do, right? If you want to add two huge numbers, you can call a calculator program, have it done. And I think the idea behind tool use is you can just have the LLM have access to a calculator program and have some way of invoking it. And you can imagine there's many other tools. Could you maybe say more there? What's the frontier look like? Well, how does this even work? Yeah, so I think this is a really exciting area. I think in a way that's why LLM or the models, machine model, can be more capable than human being because I think the importance for the tool use is there's few stages. One is you have a lot of tools at your hand, like calculator, you know, simulator,、uh, whatever. Like say, lookup tools, right? Like all of those tools. The first question that the model needs to know is which tool to use. That's like human being. Like imagine, like I ask you a question, what would you do? You said,、like, hmm, should I do a search? Should I do a use calculator? Should I? Do... It's like, do I pull a book off my bookshelf? Exactly. Or do I go grab a screwdriver? And... <laughs> exactly. I mean, these are things I know intuitively, but、I、had to learn, right? Or do I need a tool? Maybe I can just answer your question directly, right? So that's the triggering and tool selection piece. So that's the first step, and the second step is once I select a tool or a few tools, how do I use that? That is like what is the language, what is the input format or like API, like the interface to that tool, and then how should I frame my question or query to that tool? And that query generation piece is like say how do I use this tool basically, and then you use that tool. And then you get the response, and then how do you handle that response? And how do you use that response to generate your final response to to me or to other people, to users? And sometimes this is not just one path; there are multiple paths. Basically, sometimes you may need to decompose the question. Say, oh, I cannot directly get the answer from one tool. I need to first ask a first question, and then use some tool to answer that question. 
and then use that intermediate result and to ask my next question, and then send that question with that query to a different tool. And then I need to basically integrate all of the information I got now, right? That's in a little bit like research process, right? And then you you generate the response. And when even when you generate the response, you may need to use some tool, right? Like to, to generate like charts or something like that. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I can't help but think a little bit about the human brain in the sense that the brain has pocket calculators. You know, you have the cerebellum, which you kind of outsource a lot of coordination tasks to, or the basal ganglia for kind of initiation of movements. Is the future of AI assembling different architectures? So transformers for language, CNNs for vision, maybe something else for coordination. Yeah, so again, you're nodding, so tell me more. Yeah, I think modular is going to be the direction, right? Modular neural nets is going to be the direction. And I mean, it's an important direction to go. Like human brain, there are different modules that is specialized in some tasks or some type of task, let's say. However, I'm not sure what is exactly the best architecture for what module yet. Uh, I just think that they may be different because the reason I say this is that it's not completely clear that CNN is the best for vision. Right? CNN used to be amazing. Convolution neural nets used to be amazing for vision. And it's actually, in a way, it mimics the, the human vision system, how it works. But transformers later, like say, has been proven that it can be works even better than some of the CNN. So as for the detailed architecture, it's not sure, but I think there could potentially needs different kind of structure or the type of connection patterns for different modules to make it most efficient for that purpose of that module. Yeah, and, and then related to that, or, or maybe not, you'll tell me, is kind of multimodality. You know, we talk about text, but you know, you can talk about building models that also incorporate images. And you know, you give the example of a parent says, this is an apple. Well, this is usually pointing to something visual. So say a little bit more about multimodal learning. Yeah, I think multimodal is definitely really huge, not only just because we can do different tasks requires, but it's also good for grounding as well, right? Like our human being, we ground our language with the vision and with the audio sometimes and and with each other. And to do multimodal learning, we need, you know, ideally like different modules for different modality of data. Uh, And then each module is like responsible for encoding or understanding, you know, one modality and then feed it into a centralized kind of language or reasoning network. And then when we output, like we can output through different things through language or through different control systems. So that's how human brain works. But then similarly for machine learning models, it should be like say have modules each module is specialized to handle one modality, ideally. We've covered an amazing assortment of topics, and it's clear that we're only really scratching the surface. It sounds like there's so many different promising research directions. There's so many different promising technologies that you're working on to bring to the world. At risk of opening up a can of worms, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or that we should have asked you? I just think that overall, this area of I call it deep generalist learning. Uh, some people call it foundation modeling or some people call it LLM, but it's actually multi-model. It's really fascinating and it's like really went beyond a lot of people's expectations. And some people felt that it's 
it's almost like can terminate the world or something. Some folks and some folks feel like it's. I feel it's still like sort of just beginning of showing the capability, and I hope that. We are like say on the being bold and safe front, or being responsible front. I hope that we are not in either extremes. For one extreme, it's like okay, let's just be bold and do whatever, and then not like sort of say、um, guardrailing anything. But the other side, like say oh, like this is going to be the end of the world, and let's stop. I hope that there is something middle ground that we can keep develop the capability, but still with like a very careful sort of thinking on how to we. Put it to good use, and I like to use the analogy with fire. Right? If we don't invent fire, like we won't be the human being that we are today. But fire can be used in a lot of ways that can actually make damage and hurt, or or things like that. But how do we enable innovations like this, but still make it safe and have good policies and things like that to to prevent the damage? You know. Claire, this was just such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you, folks. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Let's move on to the hammer and nail part of our podcast, where you and I talk about a nail, a problem, or a hammer, the solution, in honor of our in-person meetups in Boston many moons ago. So, Alex, this week I have a hammer, and I've been thinking about this hammer a lot, and I'm trying to figure out what's the right nail for it. Okay, let's.、Uh, this is my favorite kind of brainstorm, where we, <laughs> and it's it's just I think how our minds are built a little bit, which is like, oh, got this cool thing, like what's it useful for? But of course, we've been hardened by the real world and knowing that we must find a purpose for the cool shiny toys that we we stumble across. So, I love this kind of conversation. Tell me more. All right, so you're gonna be shocked to hear. That I've been thinking about LLMs and chatbots. What? <laughs> I mean, nobody in the world is talking about LLMs and chatbots right now. Are you're、they? off. You're a hermit, you know, contemplating、yeah. mysteries that nobody else can even comprehend, or, or much less、uh, pops into their mind. But yeah, go on. Of course, this is、exactly. the world is, is taken by storm by these things. But I'm curious what what your angle is here. What are you thinking about? Well, specifically, I'm looking for nails in the realm of clinical medicine,、hmm. and. What is their role in actually helping in the care of patients? Got it. There are so many aspects where it's interesting to think about applying these. You know, the first thing I'll call out is one of the things that I think is very sad about the current physician-patient encounters is that when you go to your doctor, your doctor is sitting there staring at a computer screen with their back to the patient, typing feverishly to try and get their note written while they see the patient. And you contrast that when my grandfather practiced medicine, and you know the doctor would sit down and actually listen to the patient and talk to them, maybe take a few notes, often talk to them for hours on end. So one area right away is could we improve clinical documentation? And the answer might be actually take most of the history and physical with the chatbot before the patient comes to the doctor. Another could be. Summarize the patient-physician encounter and turn it into a note, and all the doctor does is talk to the patient using like a, a speech-to-text technology as well. Well, you don't just want a dictation of the patient-physician encounter; you want the patient-physician encounter first turned into text, 
and then summarized into a clinical note. Uh, okay, so first digitize the interaction word for word and then apply an intelligent transformation that summarizes it or extracts relevant information for future encounters, for future uh, decision-making. Exactly. And then, you know, even beyond that, there's a lot of other interesting things that you could imagine a role for chatbots. So, so let me give one example I think about a lot. Is a part of the patient-physician encounter that is notoriously poorly documented is the family history. Mm. And the reason why is to take a proper minimum of three-generation family history takes a long time. And very few physicians have the time in the office to do it. But you often learn really surprising things. So, so let me tell you one story, and this is one that really illustrated to me and, and where we could do better. Is I remember there was a patient when I was a cardiology fellow who had had sudden cardiac arrest at the gym, and you know, um, which is to say he died. And so somebody at the gym knew CPR and brought him back to life. Wow. Yeah, and so that night I was on call, took care of him. And over the coming weeks, we did a lot of elaborate tests, like did an angiogram where you shoot dye into the coronaries of the heart. We did cardiac MRI. But the single most important thing we did was actually call up his brother. And so I called his brother. I said, anybody in your family have a history of heart disease? And he was like, no, nobody. We've all had hearts that were strong as an ox. I was like, okay, was it just the two of you? Do you have any other siblings? He's like, well, we had a sister that uh, it was really strange. She was a champion swimmer. And she died when she was 35 in a bizarre drowning accident. And you're like, oh, okay, huh. Okay, well, what about your parents? Are they still alive? Well, mom's still alive. But, you know, dad, it was really weird. When he was 40, he just fell down the stairs and cracked his head open and died terribly there. It's like, well, did dad have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, you know, dad actually had a sister as well who was, you know, driving a car and just drove off the road when she was about 35 years old. And, you know, we always just assume she'd fallen asleep. And so you start going through the family history in this family that supposedly had no history of heart disease. And there's a pattern of autosomal dominant traumatic death around the age of 40 hmm. that they all seem to have had. So very clearly, it was not that the sibling fell down the stairs and died, but rather died and fell down the stairs. Ah. <laughs> Yeah. And so that's an example of one where physicians almost never take a careful family history. And so you miss a lot of important things. You know, you could imagine actually a really rewarding chatbot experience that's some version of, tell me about your family. Yeah. it's well, You're describing an Agatha Christie story where the murderer are genes being passed yeah. through the family, right? And like, that's, that's a detective story. And yes. like, wouldn't you want to know <laughs> if there's some kind of a drama or, or you know, danger lurking inside of your family? I mean, I want to know that that information's in the hands of the people taking care of my health. But again, like it's the kind of thing that very few doctors will have the, the time to be able to take this kind of thing in the office. And so again, it's really about the first place my brain goes, but there could be a lot of them. It really is the physician-patient encounter and how we make that better. And I'll tell you, there's another thing that really has me thinking about this, which is there's a paper that came out in late April in JAMA Internal Medicine, which is you know definitely a very respectable medical journal, where they took 195 patients from a social medium forum and basically had either licensed healthcare professionals talk to them or chatbots and basically asked, you know, the patients, what was your experience? Oh boy. And it was kind of amazing that in general, the patients 
found the chatbots more empathetic, which is very concerning. And ironically, a lot of it was that the chatbots spent longer talking to the patients. You know, the doctors would kind of quickly ask questions and want to get on to the next patient where the chatbot doesn't get bored, isn't pressured for time. And so, you know, would just talk to the patients longer. So the patients experienced it as greater empathy. I find this really fascinating. And the question appears in my mind, are chatbots looking so great because the bar is already so low? Yeah, I mean, okay, so to be fair, I, I'm probably uh, should be a little kinder to the doctors in the description of my study. So just to go one level deeper, this was on Reddit and there's a, you know, ask docs questions on Reddit. And so there were times where doctors were not viewing this as like a traditional patient physician encounter, you know, and a, a patient would say, I swallowed a toothpick, am I okay? And the doctor would say, if you're not dead already, you're fine. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, right, you know, and then they would ask the chatbot the same questions. So to be fair, you know, it was, it was a not a perfectly done study, but I do think there's just a bit of a kernel of truth to this that actually... There's something there. Yeah. Yeah, there's something there. It, is that the current generation of doctors is busy, kind of interacts in a way that's often a little bit curt for reasons of honestly just, you know, the scheduling rate of patients in a clinic. And I, I do think there's an opening to improve the patient-physician encounter through this technology. Yeah. The thing, I don't know if this is going too far afield, but the kernel of the problem seems to be the limits of the human mind. Okay. It's a weird thought experiment here. If we experience time at twice the rate, or if our days were twice the length, but the workload, for whatever reason, hadn't adapted to that, but we had kind of twice the density or volume of moments in which to interact with each other and in which to do things, we might not have this problem. You know, it might be back in the world of your grandfather practicing medicine where things were simpler and times were slower, but things have sped up enormously. And a way I think about what's happening is in many domains, we're reaching the limits of what our minds can do in this current era. That's right. And we're, we're building these systems which do not currently have the full capacity of a human mind, but in very narrow domains, they can do things we've previously called intelligent, like play chess or play Go, or have a, a short but meaningful and mostly accurate, you know, patient-physician interaction. But the difference is, just like machines can scale mechanical work to a degree simply not possible with muscles, these kinds of systems can scale some narrow kinds of cognitive work well beyond the range of what our minds can support. And in some domains, it sounds like we need that. Yeah, I totally agree. This is a great point. And let me bring like to another use case about the role of chatbots in medicine, which is the challenges of remembering everything that you're supposed to know. So every medical student goes through this period when you first start, the phrase that's often used is you're trying to sip from a fire hose. And there's just this deluge of information that starts on day one with anatomy. But, you know, in the modern world, you not only have to know anatomy and physiology, you have to know innumerable lists of proteins that become drug targets and cellular pathways and mechanisms of actions of drugs and drug toxicities. Yeah, it seems like a crazy, I mean, just the amount of information that's out there. There's a name for every eyelash, but not only that, there's names for different parts of the eyelash. <laughs> And, you know, it's very clear to any practitioner that you are well past the point of there is more information than any one person can know. And the sad thing is that 
mistakes are often made because people forgot something or missed something. And so again, as a bicycle of the mind or a bicycle of the clinician's diagnostic capabilities or management capabilities, it's, I think, a very intriguing possibility of being able to, you know, to use the current parlance, a co-pilot for the physician that helps them remember the guidelines and remember toxicities and drug-drug interactions or, you know, diagnoses to consider that they might have forgotten about, things like that. I think that's incredibly important. And it's a part of the trajectory of our species, frankly. I mean, scissors are sharper than any one piece of our body and can help us do things that we can't do. And the systems that we've used to try to predict if it's going to rain today or tomorrow since the 1960s have augmented well past our ability to sense the world, to forecast what's going to happen next. And we're taking this even further and, and maybe in domains that you know are happening faster than we anticipated. There's a concept that wraps a lot of this together for me from uh, one of my favorite science fiction authors. And he wrote a piece of nonfiction that I think is brilliant uh, called Summa Technologiae. It's kind of a book of futurism, like what will happen in the future. He predicts the metaverse and augmented reality in the 1960s, which is really lovely. He has this concept called the information barrier. And the information barrier is kind of just a, a catch-all phrase for the moment at which the human mind can't do the tasks that we're asking it to do. In keeping everything we need to know in mind, of sensing everything we need to sense, and of forecasting the future or predicting outcomes from present state, using all this information is just ridiculously hard. And we're in this amazing era where we actually can push the information barrier back using a totally new class of tool. I, I just This is like, it's got to be one of the most exciting times to be alive is today. <laughs> uh, no question. I mean, I think that's a really uplifting and optimistic way to think about it is that, you know, instead of focusing on all of the shortcomings of this current situation, but rather the opportunities for them to change rapidly for the better in our lifetime. Completely. The, today is the best day to be alive, and I think tomorrow is going to be even better. <laughs> I mean, I believe this really deeply. Yeah. I mean, call me a, yeah. an optimist or a techno-optimist. I don't know what the phrase is or the philosophy is, but times are confusing, times are tough. But what is happening and what we could do for our species given all that's being developed, all that is being shared amongst us is just truly incredible. Totally agree with you, my friend. This has been a great episode. It's always, always, always a delight to talk with you, Anthony. Until next time. Our thanks to Dr. Claire Tsui for joining us this week. Next week, we're going to talk to Dr. Reardon about how he is simplifying human control over computers. And finally, we'd love to know what you think of this series. You can write us at theoryandpractice@gb.com or tweet at gbteam. This is a GB podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our series producer was Hilary Geit, executive producer Duncan Barber, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. And this is Theory and Practice. <laughs>